0: Section 3 of Brain and Personality. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Larry Wilson. Brain and Personality, or Physical Relations of the Brain to the Mind, by William Hannah Thompson. Brain Weight and Mental Faculty what we have arrived at so far is that the gray matter is the physical basis of the mind no one now disputes this the eye does not see any more than an opera glass sees it is one place only in the gray cortex which actually sees and as with the consciousness of sight so doubtless the seat of every other special form of mind consciousness is somewhere in this mysterious layer but how far does this take us not very far because if we hence should infer that consciousness in all its forms of sensation feeling perception thought etc depended wholly on the existence of so much gray matter we should soon encounter a series of material i e physical facts and conditions which if they did not actually contradict such inferences would at least seriously modify them to begin with the simplest as well as the most physical facts In all animals there is a close correspondence between the degree of development of any organ and its functional power or activity a powerful arm implies a big arm or at least not an undersized one is a powerful brain likewise a big brain or at least not an undersized brain in other words does the actual size of brain in man bear any direct relation to mental capacity this question may be answered in the affirmative only however with so many qualifications that it then becomes by itself of little account in our discussion thus the brains of most idiots and of half-witted persons are usually smaller and weigh less than the average of normal brains while many men distinguished for their mental powers have had large and heavy brains but the exceptions are very numerous both ways thus assuming the average weight of normal european brains among men to be forty nine point five ounces we have the following list of the brain weights of distinguished men given by Professor John Marshall Abercrombie, 64.7, Lord Campbell, 56.7, Webster, 55.5, 5. Chalmers, 54.8, De Morney, 54, Wellwell, 51.2, Grote, 52, Tiedemann, forty seven point four hansemann forty five point four helmholtz forty five dollinger thirty seven point seven but just such variations are found among people in general not at all distinguished even among paupers in a large series of observations cited by professor marshall thirteen brains among nine hundred were found to weigh above sixty ounces the heaviest perfectly healthy brain was that of a mechanic which weighed just above seventy ounces in the journal of the biometrical society june nineteen five professor carl pearson frs and dr raymond pearl give the results of an analysis of two thousand one hundred adult male and one thousand thirty four adult female brain weights belonging to five races swedish bavarian hessian bohemian and english with the conclusion that quote, there is no evidence that brain weight is sensibly correlated with intellectual ability of the five races investigated by the biometricians the english have the smallest mean brain weight the mean of the adult englishman is twenty-seven grams less than the bavarian mean fifty-seven grams less than the hessian mean sixty-five grams less than the swedish mean and one hundred twenty grams less than the bohemian mean on the other hand brain bulk as such varies according to racial peculiarities with little or no reference to mental faculty thus the ancient peruvians who founded the empire of the incas must be regarded as an intellectual people but they were remarkable both for the small size of their skulls and for brains which were on an average no larger than those of many idiots one of the latest discussions on this subject by professor david who made a most careful examination of the brain of the most remarkable man in modern times for pure intellectual powers, Hermann von Helmholtz. Professor Hansemann was much disappointed to find that Helmholtz's brain weighed barely forty-five ounces, but the brain of Dr. Dollinger, the eminent historian, weighed only thirty-seven point seven ounces. He concludes his elaborate paper on this subject with the remark that all investigators agree— that the weight of the brain bears no relation to the mental capacity of man likewise the external measure of a head is of no account whatever no man's intellect can be judged by the size of his hat johannes Müller's had the large circumference of six hundred fourteen millimeters richard wagner's six hundred millimeters but napoleon's was only five hundred sixty-four and darwin's five hundred sixty-three millimeters Therefore, if any conclusions can be drawn from these considerations, it would seem as if brain organization was more important than mere size. Hence it follows that neither of our two opposing theories is helped by these anatomical facts. A gifted violinist would greatly prefer to play upon a violin of standard make, however expensive it was, than appear before a critical audience with the cheap product of a village artificer. No one can doubt that an originally well-organized brain is a good thing to have But that does not affect the real point at issue Which is whether the best organized brain or for that matter any other brain can be made to think without a thinker We have therefore again to go further into the subject than the mere size of the brain and man will carry us but our very next step brings us to an anatomical fact of primary importance which seems to make our previous discussion about the bulk of brain matter quite superfluous to some indeed this anatomical fact appears to dispose of the aeolian harp theory altogether as far as physical basis for it is concerned so sweeping in reality are the conclusions which follow upon this single material factor in the problem that it is well to pause and take our bearings on all sides to be sure of the full import of its significance the question all along has been this as all are agreed that the gray matter is the material seat of thought etc is it also the source of thought the dictum of bory st vincent Cabanus, karl Vogt, and others was that the brain secretes thought just as the liver secretes bile as a statement this is intelligible enough and all writers who advocate what we have represented as the aeolian harp theory of the relation of the brain to the mind will be found on examination to hold essentially the same opinion, however they may differ in their statement of details. Thought, feeling, volition, etc., are on the last analysis, according to any such view, the products of the material organization of the gray matter as it responds to its appropriate specific stimuli. Now it is evident that such a premise involves one inevitable conclusion, namely that the more gray matter you have, the better thought, etc. you will have. If this be granted, it becomes then a question of quantitative gray matter. And if, in accordance with modern conceptions, thought be conceived of as a form of energy stored up by the gray matter, then the amount of this energy liberated will be appropriate to the quantity of the specific substance which stores it up. But even on this hypothesis, mere quantity of the mind generating material is not enough another factor has to be taken fully into account namely how it is organized because it is only by its special organization that one portion of this gray matter is endowed with the faculty of sight and another in a different place does not see but hear and so on for each special sense but for the present we may let this inconvenient factor pass and revert to the original proposition That, however complex the organizing be it is the gray matter which is organized and hence the more there be of this cerebral stuff the more correspondingly will its various mental products be but the anatomical fact which wholly disposes of this theory is that we like most people and particularly these reasoners are quite inaccurate when we use the word brain there is no such thing as a brain in a human being he always has two brains And never one brain just as he has two eyes and two ears and these two brains are just as perfectly matched and duplicates of each other in all their parts as his two eyes and his two ears are therefore if the quantity of gray matter is the fact for us to found our superstructure upon one half of this matter being in the right brain and the other half in the left brain it follows that if one of the two brains be rendered useless by any chance either half the mind or half of the mental capacity will be gone is that so instead of being so it has been abundantly demonstrated that one of the two brains can do all the thinking necessary for the purposes of life no addition of mental power nor of mental endowment is secured by our having two brains any more than the faculty of sight is increased in us by our having two eyes this however is only in accordance as we shall see with the general law of all pair organs in the body whose existence in pairs is for quite other reasons than for increase in function it is difficult therefore to see why our paired brains should constitute an exception to this law and that they do not do so in fact we shall show by anatomical evidence of the most convincing kind we may observe here in passing That this pairing of the mind's organ is a very perplexing problem to some reasoners as one authority remarks we are completely in the dark as to the reason why we possess two hemispheres this difficulty arises mainly from certain assumptions about the relations of thought to matter while the constant use of the term brain unconsciously leads to the conception of a single organ as the source of thought just as the liver is the only source of bile it is in fact an illustration of the dominance of this conception that this identical comparison of the brain to the liver occurs so often among writers of this school but though we may correctly speak of the eye and the ear in the singular so long as we are talking of the function itself of sight or of hearing such language is no longer correct when we speak of them in the plural for we then are only referring to them as instruments of sight or of hearing for instruments and nothing but instruments these pair organs certainly are though without the eye there would be no sight and without the ear no hearing yet the eye is no more the seat or source of sight than is a telescope or microscope whether therefore our two perfectly symmetrical brains are likewise not the sources but rather the instruments of thought we will now proceed to examine End of section three.